Welcome to this podcast interview for the Los Angeles Review of Books. My name is Armand de Boever. I am the Critical Theory Philosophy Section Editor for the Review. I'm here today with Professor Judith Butler. She's Maxine Elliott Professor in the Department of Comparative Literature and the Program of Critical Theory at the University of California, Berkeley. Judith, welcome. Thank you. And yeah. uh, you're in LA to give four lectures, four public lectures. They're assembled under the title, let me sure I get this, let me make sure I get this right, Demonstrating Precarity, Vulnerability, Embodiment, and Resistance. Readers of your work, I think, will hear an echo here of the title of one of your recent books, Precarious Life, The Powers of Mourning and Violence. Could you talk maybe a little bit about how you arrived from precarious life at the topic of these public lectures? Mm -hmm. Well, um, my public lectures uh, tend to be concerned with the idea of um, assembly, public assembly, and what it means when bodies come together uh, to protest or to assert uh, certain kinds of demands or to object to uh, certain social conditions. And in the last years, I've been particularly interested in demonstrations against precarity or sometimes in the European context, demonstrations against austerity. Um, they're obviously uh, referencing fiscal policies that um, produce rather stark uh, economic uh, uh, consequences for a vast number of people. Um, so, um, and, and I think uh, in general, um, uh, the right of public assembly, which has been with us for some time, and I think was originally posited as a as a right on the part of laborers to assemble and decide whether or not they wanted to be part of a union, <laughs> or to assemble to decide to decide and negotiate their wages. Um, uh, that right of assembly is, has often been understood as an abstract right, without thinking about the fact that it it requires bodies to come together and. It's a right that is a, a right about that mm, presupposes mobility, um, the freedom uh, to gather, and the freedom to speak. Um, rights of assembly strike me as different from rights of association or indeed rights of free expression. They fundamentally involve the body in, in, a, in, a, in a collective uh, em embodied set of acts. Um, your first lecture which was titled From Performativity to Precarity, it, it reached even farther back, I think, into your, your oeuvre. You went all the way back there to your classic text, Gender Trouble, Feminism and the Subversion of Identity. How did a theorist of gender end up writing about public assemblies? Uh -huh. <laughs> well, um, I think back in 1988-89, when I was writing Gender Trouble, uh, I was certainly interested in social movements, and I was watching a gay-lesbian movement uh, uh, emerge in certain forms and uh, take, uh, take particular shape um, in relationship to what was then understood as uh, an HIV-AIDS crisis in the United States and, and in some other places as well, uh, the UK, um, France. Um, and I... Uh, and yet the, the theory of gender performativity that emerged in a way in the course of those reflections was very often uh, understood to be a theory that focused on individual acts or individual 
acts by which you perform a gender or take on a gender. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people thought it was um, a highly vo volitional view, that is to say that we're utterly free to take on whatever gender we want, um, and, and also that it was an individualistic view. So you're free to take on your gender and I'm free to take on mine, and that's part of our individual liberty. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a little distressing that there was that one, that was one way of reading the text. I, I understood why people might read it that way, but um, I was nevertheless somewhat distressed. So in the years that followed, I tried to uh, return to the theory of performativity um, uh, in order to show its social and political dimensions mm -hmm. more carefully. Um, it's, 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 it's true that um, uh, uh, performativity broadly understood is a, comes from a, a theory of language that talks about how language makes things happen, how certain categories can bring social realities into being uh, or produce certain kinds of effects. Um, it's a theory that, that in some ways underscores the, the powerful effects of discourse. Um, but there's a question, how is it that we embody discourses, especially the discourses of gender, and um, what can we do, what kind of agency do we have in relationship to the categories that inhabit us and that we in turn inhabit. So um, for me, thinking about um, what happens when we act in common, what happens when we act in concert, um, Hannah Arendt's views have been important for me as I try to think about what, what, performative, what performative action looks like when people undertake that in common and, um, uh, and, and demonstrations are of course a, a key way in which that happens. Mm -hmm. um, and when, when, when people are demonstrating about precarity, for instance, um, it's not just that they get up and say we're against precarity, they are also embodied creatures in public space who are calling attention to the embodied character of their lives. That this is a body that doesn't have shelter, or this is a body that deserves shelter. This is a body that ought not to be hungry. This is a body that ought to have some sense of future about its work or its possibilities for flourishing. In other words, the body is not just the vehicle for the expression of a political view, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the common uh, corporeal predicament of those who need to be um, uh, supported by proper infrastructure and proper social services and proper economic conditions and prospects. So that struck me as a, an another way of making this point and one that um, I guess for obvious reasons is important to me as it is to I think many other people at this point. Right, so in a way that development uh, is also development towards political philosophy, I don't know if I can put it in those <coughs> terms, uh, disciplinary terms. Um, what really struck me is that you, you focus a lot on this notion of we the people uh, in your lectures, I think especially in the second lecture uh, that you gave up at CalArts that seemed to put the question of sovereignty and specifically of popular sovereignty versus state sovereignty, you insisted on that distinction in your talk at the center of your concerns. And one of the things, I don't want to get too technical about this, but one of the, the things that I found interesting about this is that you seem to thereby reverse uh, a move uh, that is made in uh, Michel Foucault's work, where he says at some point in the history of sexuality, he has this famous call for us to cut off 
uh, the head of the king and instead, uh, for us in our analysis of power, look elsewhere to mm -hmm. biopolitical issues, the field mm -hmm. of sexuality and race, and it seems mm -hmm. like uh, gender trouble very much came from there in a certain extent, to a certain extent, even though you were also very critical mm -hmm. of his reading of Hakim Barban and so on and so forth. But then now the concern with sovereignty seems to be coming back uh, in, in your work. Is that a fair characterization? Um, Was Foucault too quick in calling on us to abandon sovereignty as a... <laughs> no, I think Foucault was perfectly right, but I think I'm probably meaning something very different from the concept of sovereignty that he had in mind. Mm. I mean, the sovereignty of the king is, of course, the, the, the sovereignty of the, the unified figure, the, the human figure that stands for state power and that is state power. Mm. and. Um, uh, of course, it's it's possible to model state sovereignty on 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 the implicit or explicit figure of the king, um, but when you have um, when you talk about popular sovereignty, it seems very different. The people is not a we, we can't say that um, the the people who exercise uh, popular sovereignty are a unified subject. In my view, they are not a unified subject. Mm -hmm. There's no way they're unified. Their discordant and cacophonous uh, set of voices and demands um, that nevertheless can coalesce in um, the exercise of popular sovereignty. So one question is whether the idea of sovereignty, even in popular sovereignty, is so wedded to the idea of a unified master subject like the king um, that we can't use it. It's too contaminated by that history. But what if we think about distributed sovereignty? What if we think about shared sovereignty? What do we think about um, divisible sovereignty? It can simply be a way of naming that complex situation in which rights of political self-determination are exercised without there being a, a presumption of a unified subject who's exercising them. Mm -hmm. And that kind of sovereignty, that kind of sovereignty of the people is preferable to notions of the multitude, for example, or you know, these, these debates? Well, I think, you know, um, I mean, surely the idea of the multitude is an important one, and if one goes back to look at um, Spinoza's work on um, the theological and the political, uh, one finds a really interesting set of formulations, and many people have, uh, including that word, um, multitude, many people have thought about it, um, um, including, obviously, uh, Tony Negri and Michael Hart, but also uh, Etienne Balibar and mm -hmm. others, and in some ways that are, I think, a little bit distinct from the Hart-Negri view. Um, the multitude, um, I think, uh, is, is, a, is a way of uh, naming the complex, affective, political movement of people um, who are not a unified crowd and who are not a unified subject. Um, but I'm not sure um, that it leads us to uh, the kinds of um, democratic and parliamentary outcomes that I'm also interested in. Mm -hmm. In other words, I don't, um, I don't necessarily want to understand um, uh, assembled action or even um, the popular will as something that um, has nothing to do with representative democracy or uh, parliamentary um, uh, changes of a significant kind. For me, there's, there's a kind of blurring uh, between those lines. I, d I don't think, um, 
I, I do think that the if we could talk about the will of the people, I don't think it's ever fully represented by a particular parliamentary or state structure. At the same time, I don't think we can um, have a way of thinking about the legitimacy of state structure without there being some recourse to the popular will, which is necessarily outside of it. So those are complex interrelationships, and I want to be able to think about those. I'm not sure the multitude lets me do that. Right, and so the will of the people, is never fully exhausted by the representative structures that claim to voice it or concern themselves with it? Or? I think that's a kind of necessity that democratic theorists mm -hmm. generally acknowledge, that even when the people vote and put someone in office or they accept a rule or a law or, or, or even found a state, um, the minute they actually start instituting their will, the will becomes less complex and it, it vanishes to some degree. There's always an abbreviation of the will in the, in the effect of the will. <laughs> um, that, that seems right, but, but the idea that, the, that there could be with, withdraw, a withdrawal of the will of the people from, from, from rules, from laws, even from an entire state apparatus, remains a really important one, and I don't want us to, to give up that notion mm -hmm. um, that people do have the power to withdraw their consent um, and that that can have fairly powerful consequences. Yes, and that seems to be, I don't know if this is the correct way to put it, but a kind of negative way, you know, withdrawal to uh, build a grouping, a community, a people. I don't know if you'll remember this, but after your second talk, we had a conversation with the audience in which uh, someone was bringing up the uh, Je suis Charlie uh, campaign uh, that's been going on and uh, we didn't really talk about this then but it seems to me that there's a, a problem that comes up there with the positive identification with Charlie whereas one might want to withdraw from the terroristic act that was committed there uh, that doesn't necessarily um, uh, can't necessarily be equated with a positive identification with 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 Charlie which might be uh, offensive or problematic mm -hmm. for many believers mm -hmm. I don't know if you have any uh, uh, thoughts on that yes um, well, it's always curious to me why people um, think that identification or asserting identification is the way to show solidarity. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it could be that when someone says, uh, je suis Charlie, that they mean it could have been me or I stand with him, um, or they could simply be saying, um, uh, uh, I think what happened to um, uh, those who worked for the Charlie Hebdo, the assassinations, uh, is absolutely wrong, and I wish to make my views known. Um, and that's, that's really a condemnation of what happened. It's a condemnation of those assassinations. Um, I'm not sure that the language of identification is, is always the best way to do mm -hmm. that, because I gather um, if one's going to be consistent, uh, one would be against the assassination of any group of people who are working in a political venue or who, um, who are in, engaged in the uh, formulation of, of political or satirical work. Um, in other words, uh, why, why, um, why, I mean, it's important to mark that those assass assassinations were wrong, but one needs to also say, um, maybe in the same breath, that 
all kinds of assassinations are wrong, in other words, to generalize the claim. Otherwise, it seems like a very particularistic um, term, like I'm, I'm only against the assassination of people who worked at Charlie mm -hmm. Hebdo. No, I mean, no one wants to say that, right? We appeal to general principles, the, uh, the rights to be protected from assassination, the moral condemnation of assassination. And then the question is, how, how expansive are our principles? Do they include all kinds of groups? Would they also include, include um, uh, 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 Arabs working in France who are putting out publications, some of who, whose views are, are not uh, particularly um, welcome? Uh, uh, is assassination the correct political response to views you disagree with? No. <laughs> so, you know, trying to kind of generalize the claim seems very, very important. Otherwise, it seems like one's making a cultural identification of a certain kind mm -hmm. and suggesting that those people who belong to that identifiable cultural affiliation ought not to be assassinated. But right. really, no one should be assassinated. A lot of this resonates, too, with what you've said in the, the New York Times interview that's been doing the rounds around all lives matter versus black lives matter. Yeah. Um, do you have any thoughts as to... Uh, how what you what you were just saying about well you know we must in a way universalize the claim against all assassinations but then when we're talking about all lives matter obviously there it seems to be important to bring out that well you know not not all lives seem to matter or black lives seem to be treated differently yes so there it's the but there's still um, I would say an aspiration toward the universal right. in that piece in other words black lives tend not to matter when police who kill unarmed black men are exonerated. Um, uh, black lives should matter. They should matter as much as any other life matters. Uh, actually, all lives should matter equally. <laughs> we should be radical egalitarians when it comes to the question of whose lives matter. Um, uh, and yet we fail in that egalitarian project. We fail to universalize that claim time and again because we have very specific cultural ideas of what a valuable life is. So if we say um, that only certain kinds of lives can be publicly grieved or the assassination of certain kinds of lives should be publicly condemned, but other lives can remain unremarked or perhaps the loss of their, those lives are not so important, or maybe they deserved it anyway. Whatever that moral confusion is that um, pervades responses such as those, um, they, they suggest that we actually do have cultural pre prejudices. We have cultural presuppositions about what a valuable life might be and what a grievable life might be. Um, so in the same way that I'm saying in the French context, let's make sure in saying je suis Charlie, that we're not saying those of us who come through the tradition of French republicanism <laughs> hang together <laughs> and, and we deserve not to be assassinated for furthering the, the views of Voltaire or the tradition of Voltaire. Um, I mean, of course that's right, but it's also right that those lives from that tradition should matter equally to any other set of lives, including lives that don't come through that, that tradition. Um, so one needs to kind of be attentive, I think, to the cultural prejudices that inform our ideas of which lives finally matter.
Right, and so I think some of the of this reflection happens in your work, or at least in the public lectures around this notion, we the people. But I've also, I've also seen that happen in your work around the notion of, of the human. And I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit about uh, a notion that you, you, you mentioned in Frames of War. I think it's in the chapter titled Torture and the Ethics of Photography, where you talk at some point about the human as, or you propose we think about the human as a differential norm. Could you talk a little bit about what you mean by that, yeah. that notion? Well, first let me say this. I mean, I, I don't know, I picked up a, uh, a journal and there was an article on, on Butler's New Humanism and I thought, oh, that's very funny. I guess it was bound to happen. Uh, <laughs> and let's see, why is that the case? And, and then I thought, oh, it's because I'm willing to talk about the human as a category and we're supposed to be post-human or we're supposed to have you know, transcended the human. And a norm even, right? That's right. A differential norm, but still. <laughs> well, um, I think, in fact, there's no way to talk about the human outside of a field of power. I suppose I'm still a proper Foucauldian in, in certain mm -hmm. ways. Um, uh, whenever we're talking about the human, it seems we, we have to ask which version of the human is at stake, or how is it being circumscribed, and uh, through what exclusions and with what consequences. Um, I don't believe we can dig deep and find the ontological version of the human that is absolutely true for all humans. That's not my aspiration. It's not even my expectation. But I accept that the category of the human is a very powerful norm and it in influences so, so much public debate and public policy and theoretical reflection um, um, that uh, I don't think we can do without it. Indeed, sometimes I, I worry that those who treat it as a kind of contaminated, contaminated by humanism, we're too cool, we're too post-structuralist, we can't talk about it. They don't see that categories like this can be revisited. We can ask about their genealogy. We can ask how they've been formulated and through what occlusions and with what effects. It seems like that's a critical approach to the category of the human. I think a lot of that is happening now too in animal studies or um, in even um, in technology studies, where's the human in relationship to the animal and, and technology? Can we, can we differentiate? Perhaps the human is a set of relations among these various uh, terms, um, human life and living process. How do we think about human life in, ter in, terms, of, in terms of living processes m more generally? Mm -hmm. I mean, in each of these cases, the human is not um, a self-sustaining category for sure. It's, it's sustained through its embeddedness in a whole set of relationships. Mm -hmm. But that gives us something to think about and that strikes me as, as, as very important. And yet there are uh, ideas of the human that insist upon its isolation, its uh, normativity, its ideal status. And um, there again, I'm, uh, I'm concerned about which version of the human gets elevated to the status of the human as such? And can we, can we think more critically in genealogy in order to uncover those kinds of um, biases? Right, that seems to be an important component also of your work on, on Israel-Palestine. Well, um, I think probably, um, <coughs> uh, do you, do you mean to say that the category of the human figures in my work on Israel-Palestine? Yes, who is considered human, um, who falls within that count, who is yeah. left outside of it, yes. and then 
you know, what political, ethical and political consequences uh, yes. come with that? Well, I think one, one thing we, we find in war, and I think we can find this in several uh, scenarios of war, is that um, uh, especially those that are, um, that are uh, um, engaged uh, by um, first world countries or in the name of Western civilization or European values, uh, um, that very often um, the fate of the human seems to be at stake in the war. The enemies are, are not uh, are not exactly humans. They are the threat to the human, and the the human that's being defended is is very often a very um, uh, culturally specific idea, informed by ideas of manhood, informed by ideas of reason, informed by ideas of autonomy, um, of civilizational norms, of um, uh, of. Of, of cultural and educational formation. And um, so in those cases, it's very hard to talk about human rights or even crimes against humanity when those who have, in fact, inflicted those crimes don't understand the, the, the beings they have destroyed, the beings they have maimed, or the beings they have displaced is within the community of the human. So, um, you know, I think that's a, that's a way in which civilizational politics plays out in, in war scenarios. Mm -hmm. I think it's in your last lecture uh, that you will talk a little bit about nonviolence also. I wanted to ask you about this in part because I remember years ago taking a seminar with you on Walter Benjamin's critique of violence uh -huh. <laughs> at Cornell, I think it was in the School of Criticism and Theory, and um, you know, wondering now so many years later, you know, does your thinking about nonviolence still come out of that Benjamin essay and huh. the work you've been doing on that? What, how it might it have changed over time? What do you mean by nonviolence at this <laughs> point exactly? And when it comes to acts of resistance demonstrating in the streets and do you come down on the side of violence or nonviolence? I see. Uh, well, uh, it's of course um, interesting that I'm, I'm actually teaching Benjamin's critique of violence again this semester mm -hmm. at UC Berkeley. So I guess I keep returning to that. I think it was almost 10 years ago. Yes, no, I keep returning. I keep, and every time I read it, I, I get something new. Um, I myself defend a, um, uh, a principled uh, um, uh, account of nonviolence. I, I do, um, and, and it's, it's not easy to do, especially in light of the kinds of challenges people present to me. But um, I think the world would be a poorer world if no one were defending nonviolence. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not, it's not for that reason alone that I defend nonviolence, but um, I do think uh, that it's important to, um, uh, to think about uh, what the justifications for violence are and uh, w what kinds of um, um, contradictions they entail. So I think I have a longer argument um, about nonviolence, but I am um, I'm very much in favor of nonviolence. What interests me in part, and there are many things to say here, but what interests me in part is how uh, nonviolent action is sometimes called violent. And even Benjamin in that essay, uh, sometimes 
he seems to be naming what is violent and what is nonviolent. But then if you look a bit closer, you see that he's claiming that within the perspective of a particular legal regime, any challenge to the legal regime is called violent. Um, and what's being opposed in, in naming a resistance to the legal regime as a violent one um, is uh, the, the loss of the mon monopoly of violence, the monopoly on violence that the state has. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, but, but in fact, many nonviolent resistance movements are called violent, uh, uh, not because they use force or even have violent aims, but because the, their effects, their, say their delegitimating effects are understood to be destructive in some mm -hmm. more amorphous sense. Um, but also, I think protocols of nonviolence on U.S. campuses are no longer being recognized or honored by, um, by police, and the police are very often um, trained in military methods and not so much in nonviolent civil disobedience mm -hmm. protocols. So uh, uh, several years ago now at Berkeley, I guess about five years ago, uh, we saw people who were offering their their hands to be handcuffed in a in a very well-known gesture of nonviolent civil disobedience who were thrown to the ground at you know at that moment um, people offering going going limp and offering themselves to be taken away or arrested who were nevertheless beaten in their limp state and so there's a kind of general question what has happened such that um, police practices such as those um, uh, no longer give uh, credence to nonviolent civil disobedience. Um, now, the police in those instances can say, well, those people were violent or they were a threat to security. When we talk about threat to security, uh, again, we're in an amorphous kind of zone where, yes, a protest um, um, on, on a university campus, say, in opposition to tuition hikes or in opposition to increased privatization, especially if you're at a public university, um, that, uh, that might get large enough to cause a problem for security, but it's not as if it's necessarily a violent one. Now, some people enter into protests with violent aims and, and do, um, I think, derail so, some of their uh, most important um, directions by engaging in violence, but I, I must say, I, I don't think that's helpful or useful. Um, uh, there's a lot more I could say about this, but I don't know which direction you want to go in. Well, I was actually thinking of wrapping it up. You've been very generous, okay. Okay. generous with your time. I did wonder, just for the viewers, the listeners, will the LA lectures be collected in a book? Um, these lectures are, for the most part, coming out in a book called Notes Toward a Performative Theory of Assembly. Um, to be published by Harvard University Press later this year. Um, but the work on nonviolence will appear separately. I'm not quite sure where. All right. Well, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you.